0: Let me invite you to turn to genesis chapter forty nine genesis chapter forty nine we'll finish up the book of Genesis this evening and uh it's been good to see God at work in this book and how he began the world and and uh started a relationship with his people. How hard is it to trust God, when life doesn't make sense. When I was in high school, I remember wanting to go out with certain friends and go over their houses and to different events or with them, and I remember on several occasions my parents would tell me no. And that didn't make sense to me. You know, my friends seemed like nice people. They seemed like well-intentioned young men and women. And at the time, I didn't understand Something about my friends that apparently my parents did i didn't understand something about myself that I was very vulnerable and susceptible to peer pressure, and that, as the scriptures say, bad company corrupts good manners. My mindset was always if if anything, I will influence them for good, but you know my parents were right that that, that um, the times when I did go out with those friends the times when i did go to different events or spend the night at their house i wasn't involved in the in listening to the best type of music i wasn't always doing the most wholesome activities or speaking wholesomely i was doing things that i would never do in front of my parents and so at the time it didn't make sense but but that is what it that's why it's so important for us to trust uh those whom God has placed in authority over us, and most importantly it is we must be trusting God, even when He tells us to to do things or not to do things, even when we don 't understand when we it, when it doesn 't make sense to us that it it seems like a good thing for me to participate in this activity or to to be with these sorts of people or to get involved in this relationship. And for you, God, to tell me not to do that, or for you, God, to tell me that I must do that, it, in other cases, it doesn't make sense. And and I think this is a good illustration of what, what it's like to live life in submission to God. Because we often will not understand what God is doing fully. And yet He commands us from His Word to live a certain way or to do a certain thing, or He tells us no in some cases. And we don't get it at the time. We think... You know, we could bring about positive influence if you just let me go down this pathway, God. But that's why we're not God. We don't know everything. We don't have everything under control like we sometimes think we do. We are instead uh, left to, and should be left to, uh, trust God, even and especially when life doesn't make sense. And that's where Joseph finds himself in that sort of situation. And so we'll conclude the book with this final passage here. Chapter 49, verse 29, to the end of the book. And so this is a bit of a longer section, so try to keep your attention as we read through. Uh, but I think it will be helpful for us to read the entire section so that we can see the big picture. Chapter 49, verse 29. This is the Word of God. This is Jacob speaking. He says, Then he charged them and said to them, his sons, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. And there they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah, and there they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah, and there I buried Leah. Field in the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed, and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. Now forty days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore please let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen, and there also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning mourning for the Egyptians. A grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his, father's, his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, For they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Maker, the sons of Manasseh, were born of Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. We have two main characters in this last passage in the book of Genesis Jacob and Joseph. And both of these men are men of faith. And we'll see tonight that faith looks beyond this life and trusts that God is in control of all of life. Faith looks beyond this life, recognizing that God is in control of it all. Jacob's faith looked beyond this life. We see that in chapter 49 verse 29 through chapter 50, verse 14. Jacob plans his burial at the beginning of our passage. Jacob says, make sure you take me back to this field in Hebron, the place where Abraham and Isaac were buried and their wives. Make sure you take me back there because that's where I'm going to be buried. Why was this so important? Why was it important for Jacob to be buried in Canaan? Now for us, does it really matter if you're buried in Royal Oak or in Farmington Hills or in in Sarasota, Florida? Does it really matter? But the difference between us and Jacob is that Jacob received a direct promise from God about himself and his descendants that they would receive this specific land of Canaan. And so for Jacob to be buried in Egypt he would have been saying to his family and to God that he didn't really trust God to give him that land. And so it's as if Jacob is with his dead body putting a stake in the ground in Canaan, just like his father and grandfather did. Putting a stake in the ground saying, I trust you, God. This is your land. This is the land that you're going to give to our descendants. I believe that you're going to do it. This was not a sentimental move on the part of Jacob. I just want to be buried next to the grave plot of my parents and grandparents. It's not the point. This was an act of faith. And then uh, in verse 33, it says that Jacob drew up his feet. Do you see that in the middle of the verse? When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last. What does this mean, to draw up his feet? Uh, We'll turn back to chapter 48. Chapter 48 in verse 2 and you'll see that at the beginning of this conversation remember in chapter 49 Jacob is spending his time blessing his sons for for the fact that that they have the promise they have now been passed the promise in chapter 48 verse 2 before he gives these promises that will that, that we saw in chapter 49 notice what happens in verse 2 of chapter 48 when it was told to Jacob behold your son Joseph has come to you Israel collected his strength and sat up in, in the bed so he he's laying down, about to die. He recognizes that he's about to die. And he sits up in bed. And we could say he, he puts his feet out on the side of the bed. Okay. And so in chapter 49, all the way from chapter 48, verse 2, all the way to the end of chapter 49, he, he's sitting up. And then in chapter 49, he draws up his feet into the bed. Lays down, recognizing that this is the end, and he breathes his last and dies. In chapter 50, verses 1 through 14, we have the mourning and the burial of Jacob. Begins with 40 days of embalming. In verses 1 through 3, this was the standard means of caring for the dead body of a person of honor in Egypt. And this would also, uh, this would also of note make it easier for them to transport the body to Hebron so they wouldn't be uh, fully decomposed when they, when they got there. So they embalmed the body, which was uh, very much uh, advanced for their time, as you know. And the Egyptians would uh, weep for him. Notice verse 3, for how long they would weep for him. Forty days for the embalming. And at the end of the verse, and the Egyptians wept for him seventy days this shows how highly honored the father of Joseph is among the Egyptians even in a foreign land this man of god is honored and is wept for by the people of Egypt for 70 days now even in Egypt when pharaoh died he only had they only mourned for him for 72 days only 2 days longer than they mourned for 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 Jacob and so this is significant uh showing that that god is is um It's blessing these people for blessing him as he had promised in chapter 12 of Genesis. Joseph gets permission from Pharaoh to fulfill the promise that he made to his father. I said that I would bury my father in the land of Canaan, so please allow me to grant this promise, to fulfill this promise. And verses 4 through 6. And so Pharaoh agrees to it, and then the procession begins in verses 7 through 10. And this must have been some procession. Notice who's all there, who's all coming to Canaan with him. Um, It says in verse 7, Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph, and his brothers and his father's household. And the only people that didn't come were the little ones and their flocks and herds. So you have quite a caravan heading over to Canaan. And this would would probably uh, be pretty spectacular and, and, and a memorable occasion for the people of Israel because the next time that they would make a procession to Canaan would be 400 years later when God delivers the people of Israel through the Red Sea and then through the wilderness and finally into the land of Canaan. Um, but until that time, they'd have to wait and they'd have to trust God. When they get to the land of Canaan, they come to the city called Atat at the end of verse 10 and they they have seven more days of mourning. Grievous mourning according to the, the people of Canaan. And then they bury Jacob in verses 12-14. through 14. So, Jacob's faith looks beyond this life recognizing that God is still working. That God is faithful to His promise. And even if... I don't see God fulfill all of His promises in my lifetime. I still trust that God's going to do it. And so he he asks to be buried in the land of Canaan. But Joseph is very similar to his father in that his faith looked beyond this life. We'll see that when we get to verses 22-26. through But before we see that, we need to see that Joseph's faith trusted that God was in control of it all. Joseph's faith trusted that God was in control of it all, verses 15 through 21. We read about the fear of Joseph's brothers in the first several verses, verses 15 through 18. They're fearful of what? Notice verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? What were they fearful of? They were fearful of Joseph's revenge upon them, that throughout this whole time yeah he went through all the motions and said, Yeah, don't worry, you know, we're on the same page, we're 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 reconciled and all that and all that weeping and stuff that he did. Yeah, we understand that Joseph, but but now that Dad's gone, you know, what if he were holding a grudge this whole time and now boom he's gonna strike, he's gonna take out revenge upon us. And he's you know, Dad's not around to Uh, to be disgraced. Joseph's not going to disgrace dad anymore because he's gone. Joseph now has become the family patriarch. Um, And if, if he were ever going to take revenge on his brothers, this was the time. And his brothers recognized it. And so instead of trusting in God's control, God's sovereignty, and doing what is right, his brothers make up a story about what their dad supposedly had said. Notice verse 16. They sent a message. They couldn't even go to Joseph directly. They sent a messenger to, to Joseph instead. And it said "It said this, Your father charged before he died, saying, verse 17, Thus shall you say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So this is the message that they come up with. This story that they come up with that's not true. And they say, Joseph, you have to forgive us because Dad would have wanted you to forgive us. Uh, In fact, he told you that you must forgive us. And they beg for mercy there in verse 18. Look at Joseph's response at the end of verse 17. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. They still don't fully understand Joseph's love for them, his appreciation of them, his forgiveness of them, instead of responding like Joseph responded to them with love and forgiveness, they respond in a way that actually hurts Joseph. That they don't fully trust him yet. And yet, despite his brother's um, frailty with regard to their faith in God and with regard to their love for their brother's Joseph Joseph remains confident in God's sovereignty. This is something that we ought to emulate here in verses 19 through 21. Joseph is confident in God's sovereignty. And his confidence shows up in two ways. Because he probably understands two important things. Number 1, verse 19. Joseph understood that he was not God. Did you see how he responds to his brothers? Verse 18, they said, Behold, we are your servants. They bow down and beg before Him. We are your servants, Joseph. Please don't don't take out this revenge on us. Verse 19, Joseph says, Don't be afraid, brothers. Am I in the place of God? In other words, I am not God. I'm not going to enact revenge upon you. If God wants to do that, that's His prerogative. But that's not mine. And so Joseph understood two things about God. One, that Joseph was not God, and two, that God is in control of everything, verse 20. God is in control of everything. Listen to this, even evil. God is in control of it all. Look at verse 20 again. As for you, you meant evil against me. And then what does he say? But God didn't know about that, and so he had to quickly react. No, it was all a part of God's plan for you to act evilly against Me. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people. Joseph understood that he was not God and that God is in control of everything and so he could entrust himself to God. And as we've talked about before, even evil is used by God to accomplish good. Now there are a couple of dangers when we talk about God's sovereignty over evil, that, that God is sovereign over evil. And I've explained it this way. That if there is evil happening apart from God's sovereignty, if God is only sovereign over good and there is evil out here happening that God is not in control of, then what that tells us is that God is out of control. That Satan is doing all that he wants and all the evil people are doing whatever they want and God is like maybe a really good chess player. He's just responding to all the evil that's taking place. He's not really in control of it. It's kind of out of control and hopefully God wins. But that's not our God. Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. No plan of His can be thwarted. They meant it for evil. Okay, so this is what we need to think about. The realm of evil over here that Satan's supposedly in control of is actually underneath the realm of God. So that God is in control of it all. And so that when God wants to use evil to accomplish good, He doesn't actually author the evil. He doesn't actually uh, create the evil. He doesn't force anyone into evil. But instead, He releases his leash on Satan or on any human agent and allows them to do what they already want to do, what they already intended to do. And so in that way, it makes that person responsible for the evil that they're doing, but at the same time, God is in control of it so that at any time he can pull that leash back in and say, no, that's enough. Now there's two dangers when we talk about God's sovereignty over evil. One is we might think that God takes pleasure in evil, but the Scriptures are clear in Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 that God takes no pleasure in the wicked. He takes no pleasure in evil. Okay, so we we got to be careful when we talk about God's sovereignty over evil. Secondly, we might think that God is responsible for evil, not us. Well. If okay, let's let's just take the, the brothers here of, of uh of Joseph. God, you're ultimately in control of all of the evil that we did to Joseph, therefore we're not responsible. You're responsible. So we have to be careful when we do that because God is never never takes responsibility for evil. He has his hand of control over it, but he doesn't take responsibility for it. You say, well, that's that's unfair. He he should if he takes responsibility for all the good that happens, and he has to take responsibility for all the evil. But that's not the way that God designed the universe. That cannot be a part of who God is. God is not evil. He does not do evil. He does not take pleasure in evil. So let's think about this again. And and I use this example all the time, but I just want to drive this home so that we're not we're not unclear about this. Does God use evil to accomplish good? Okay, think about the prime example of when God used something that was meant for evil as good. Right? Is it, is it not the crucifixion? Turn to Acts chapter 2 because I want to show you that man is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, but it ultimately was planned by God it was planned by God. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't as if God said, "Oh, my son got killed. I can't believe, now I got to figure out what am I going to do? Oh, I can raise him from the dead. That's what I can do." No, that was planned by God. That's why you see it. That's why you have it talked about in Isaiah chapter 50, 53 and several other passages in the Old Testament. That God, remember what Isaiah 53:10 says? God was pleased to what to crush him God was pleased to crush him God was pleased to crush him Yes he was it was his plan for God to sacrifice his son but he wasn't the one who actually uh you know personally came down there and slaughtered his son he he allowed that to happen through the evil acts of men who wanted that to happen. And then ultimately, God brought about good. Look at Acts chapter 2. Verse 22. This is Peter's sermon to the Jews. And he says this in verse 22. Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay, So there in the first part of verse 23, you see that God planned the crucifixion. Now look at the second part, because God doesn't take responsibility for the evil that was done. It Peter says, But you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power same thing is true in Acts chapter 4 as well uh, that that it was the evil acts of men that actually brought about the death but ultimately in the ultimate sense it was God who who planned that Jesus would die so turn back to Genesis 50 because what Joseph is saying here is consistent with the rest of scripture that when people... Mean things for evil, God intends them for good, to bring about much good, to save many people. We may not be able to answer all of the questions that we have with regard to the evil that's going on in the world, what about innocent babies that suffer and so on, but what we do know is that God is in control, and He always does what He pleases. He brings about what is best according to His purposes. Joseph knew. Joseph didn't know what God's secret will was. One of the other things that we learned from this passage is that God has two wills. There are two wills that are referred to in the scriptures. One is one is a revealed will. Okay, we also sometimes call it a, a decreed will, something that's clearly written for us what He wants us to do. And there, there are lots of passages that talk about this. I think Ephesians 5 says that, you know, uh, that it is the will of God that we be thankful in all things. First Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So we don't, have to, you know, we don't have to pray about it when we think, okay, does God want me to be immoral? We don't have to pray about that. We already know His will, will about that. But there are lots of other things that God doesn't reveal. They're not clearly revealed. Right? Should we buy this car? How should we respond to this person at work? You know, Should I marry this person? Should I go to this college? Should I get this job? So on. Those are what are known as God's secret will. It is the will that, that God knows about, but we don't. And So we have to trust Him for that. And here's what Joseph knows about God. He doesn't know all this over here. He doesn't know how God is going to use his brother's to bring about good as he's going through, that as he's sitting in the jail cell for three years, he doesn't know what God's doing there, but what he does know is God's revealed will over here. And so God, if You've told me how I ought to live and how I ought to trust You and look to Your promises and pray to You and depend upon You, that's what I'm going to do. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when I'm sitting in this cold jail cell all alone, My brothers are back home with my dad. My dad thinks I'm dead. He didn't know what God was going to do through all this. But as God starts walking him through his life and he gets to this place of prominence and saving many people, Egyptians and Israelites and many other people throughout the world, he gets to the place and he looks back and he says, you know, I didn't see it there, but now I do. Now I see what God's secret will was. I start to understand that God, You put me into a place of power and this is the way that You designed me to move to a place of power, for me to be sold into slavery by my brothers and then to be mistreated by Potiphar, put in prison and forgotten about. But You would use that to allow me to interpret the dream of Pharaoh and now move to a place of prominence so that, that I could protect, Israel, uh, protect Egypt and Israel and save many lives. So when Joseph looks back on it, he says, I didn't know. I didn't know what what was going on, the evil that you did to me. But what I did know is that God was doing it for good and that one day, either in this lifetime or in the life to come, I would know why God did those things. But in the meantime, when I don't know what's going on, when life doesn't make sense, I'm going to stick to this will right here. I'm not going to try to uncover, okay, look into all the hidden things of God and try to uncover exactly what all of his purposes are in my life when God's not telling me what those purposes are. What are some reasons that God would withhold his his secret purposes from us? Can you think of any? Isn't it to help us to depend upon him more? Don't you think if you had all the answers in life all these strange things that are happening over here that seem to be evil. If you had all the answers for why they're there, would would you trust God? Would you be praying to God as fervently as you are now? Would your faith be revealed as it is during these times of trial and, and, and difficulty and suffering? So God withholds information from us. Why? So that we will depend upon Him that we will, uh, that, that that our faith, genuine faith, would be revealed, like with Abraham, being told to sacrifice his son. He didn't know the secret will of God over here. What what is God doing through this? Why would He tell me to sacrifice? This is the child of promise. It's not Ishmael. It's Isaac. And so why would I sacrifice, the one that I've waited for so long for? But he's not. Abraham's not thinking over here. He's thinking over here. What has God told me to do? God told me to obey him and to trust him. We find out in Hebrews that Abraham recognizes that if God does kill his if God does allow him to kill his son, that God would have the power to raise Isaac from the dead. That's how confident Abraham was in the promise being fulfilled through Isaac. And that's where we need to look. We need to stop trying to under, uncover all of these you know what I would call reading providence You look at all the events in life all the red lights that we're getting maybe you know we're getting a deduction in pay at work or a dirty look from someone while we're at the grocery store what is god trying to tell me right maybe god's mad at me right now for something i did oh what did i do this morning oh i didn't do i did one minute less of devotions this morning maybe that was it hey okay, we need to stop Concerning ourselves about this secret, uh, secret, unrevealed will of God, and concern ourselves with what Joseph and Abraham and the great men of faith concerned themselves with, themselves with, and what, what we ought to, and that is the revealed will of God. What has God told me to do? That's what I'm going to look to, because all of these things that happen throughout life, this reading of providence, is not clear. We don't know what God's doing in the world and many times He doesn't tell us. And so we look to what He has told us. That is the simplest way to live life as a Christian. If you spend all of your time over here, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be distressed. Because there will be many times when God doesn't tell you why those things are happening. And what I think... Just from observation, that sort of thinking leads to is a, a karma type of mentality. I'm not getting good in my life because I haven't done good. And so I need to do more good in order to get good. Okay? And maybe because I had this all these mosquito bites, it's because I did something wrong. Okay? Mosquitoes bite both the righteous and the evil people believe it or not. Okay? Floods come to the righteous and the evil. We don't need to read providence and try to speak on behalf of God where God hasn't spoken. Instead, come over here, look at God's revealed word, revealed will for us. God, what is it that you want me to do? They may have meant it for evil, but you have meant it for good. So Joseph understands that he wasn't God, verse 19, and that God is in control of it all, verse 20. And here's his response. He calms them down in verse 21. He promises to care for them. He comforts them. He speaks kindly to them. Don't be afraid. He says that two times. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to do anything to you. I'm going to care for you. So Joseph's faith believed that God's sovereignty was in control of all things. Okay, or more simply, Joseph's faith believed in God's sovereignty. Joseph's faith also looked beyond this life. In verses 22-26, he plans his own burial like his father does in the promised land. Joseph could have said, well, you know, most of my life has been spent here in Egypt, so I'll be buried here. But no, he knows that the promise for him and his descendants is in the land of Canaan. So he prepares his burial in verses 24-25. and 25. And he's confident that God would follow through on this promise. Look at 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which He promised on oath to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. God will surely take care of you, He says. Do you know the next time that Joseph makes it back to the land of Canaan or at least his bones? You remember who carried his bones over? Wasn't it Joshua? Joshua and the people of Israel 400 years later. And so Joseph was confident that God would, would work. Now the book ends somewhat similarly to how it began, and it also ends a little bit differently. It's different because at the beginning, we see this beautiful creation. And at the end of chapter 1, God says, Behold, it was what? Very good but at the end, what do we have? We have God's man in a coffin in Egypt. See that at the end of verse 26. And so there's a little bit of, of wonder. What's going on here? God's still in control. The west, the rest of God's people are waiting, and we know it's going to be a long time before they even uh, be, they ever uh, are delivered. So it ends differently. God's in control. He looks at it. Behold, it's very good at the end. God's man's in a coffin. But it does end similarly in that at the beginning we see God is in control of all things and and making all these things, putting them exactly where He wants. And at the end we see the same thing. God is powerfully in control of all things. And He puts people and, and everything exactly where He wants. And it may be in our lifetime. It may not be in our lifetime, but God is doing what He has planned to do with or without us. You know what the book of Hebrews commends Joseph for? Not for his deliverance of Israel through his great leadership and and wise wise leading, but rather it was for his future hope in God and giving his bones to this future generation and promising or, or getting them to promise that they would take them to the promised land. That was what Hebrews commends Joseph for his future hope in God. And even though he didn't see it in his lifetime, he trusted that God would accomplish what He had promised. And so in spite of the death of godly people and despite discouragement and setbacks and ever-recurring sin, we as God's people must be confident in Him and in His promises that He will bring about final deliverance to His people. We need to keep trusting in Him even when the way ahead seems dark and dreary. Remember Joshua chapter 5, where Joshua moved into enemy territory, crossed over the Jordan River, got all his army with him, and then what did he do? What was the first thing God told him to do when he crossed the river? Circumcise all your men. Wait a second. We're now in enemy territory, and you're going to incapacitate all of our men for several days so that. The, we're, we're going to be extremely vulnerable. Wait a second, God. Is that surely what You want to do? Is, is that what You want to do? That's going to stop our momentum. We've already made it across. We've seen this great divide to, to open up the Jordan River and we've put up these memorial stones. And Now we're in enemy territory and You want us to be vulnerable here? Even when life doesn't make sense. God knows what He's doing. God's not bound by human strategy. doesn't need our advice. Even though this was physically dangerous, apparently, it was spiritually necessary because God was setting these people apart as His people. This is how they were showing their submission to Him. By circumcising themselves. And so they were willing to trust God even when it didn't make sense. They had seen their fathers die. Why? Why did the people of Israel who were in the land of Canaan, ready to conquer it, why did their fathers die? Do you remember? Because of their lack of faith. They trusted in their own human skill, human wisdom, and they stopped trusting in God. God, you don't make sense. These giants are huge in the land of Canaan. We're not going to be able to defeat them. And that was the tipping point. God said, you know what? You're not going to see the land of Canaan at all you're going to die in the wilderness. And I'm going to wait for another generation to come along who will trust Me for My Word, will take Me at My Word and just do it. And So these people who have crossed over now, they have seen the great works of God. They've seen great works performed before their eyes. And they've also seen their, this older generation die without receiving the promise. Because they're impatient with God sadly, we are much like that older generation of Israel sometimes. We're impatient with God. We don't want to wait. We don't want to trust. We want to take the reins ourselves away from God. God, here, let me show you how to do this. Let me show you how to run my life. And what we're ultimately doing is we're taking God off of the throne and we're saying, here, I'm going to sit there instead. I'm God now of my life. And I'll tell God myself what I ought to do, not you. And we want it now. We want all the promises now. But sometimes God says, you know what, you need to stop. Think about two things. Number one, like Joseph, you are not God. And number two, I am in control of it all, so just trust Me. Will you trust Me? Will you let go of the rain, the rains, because I am in control God's favor is withheld from those who are disobedient and impatient. And we tend to be impatient at times, don't we? We move on ahead of God where we think He is leading. We have this idea that we know where we want to go, where what the goals are, and where we should go. We don't wait for God's time and as a result, we're willing to fudge it a little bit when it comes to what He told us to do. Yeah, I know you told me to do this with regard to my church or with regard to my family, but... God, I know what it's going to take to make me happy and to make my life successful. So, we wouldn't say it this way, but step aside. This is what we do with our actions. Step aside, God, and I'll take care of it myself. And what ends up happening when we do that? We usually lead ourselves into destruction, don't we? Into hurt. And the ongoing... we experience the ongoing consequences of sin, and we we need to recognize that God's purposes are best, and He He needs to be trusted. And so that, you know, maybe let's just think about our personal or or corporate growth as a church. God, it's not going as quickly as I want it to go. I I want to grow fast. I want our church to grow fast. So so where are you? Okay, it doesn't seem like you're here. So let me try my own tactics. Let me start adopting things that I've seen work in other places, instead of trusting You for what You have said to do, to trust Your Word, to, to make that the center of what we're doing, I need to recognize that, that change in our own lives and change in the life of our church takes time. But I can tell you this, that it will take a lot longer if, if we disobey, if we don't trust God, if we fail to consecrate ourselves, if we fail to trust God for the outcome, if we fail to allow Him to be our guide. Joshua figured this out. He had seen it in the previous generation. He had witnessed the former unbelieving generation and how they were not set apart for God. They cared more about themselves than about what God had said. They cared about more about their word, their thoughts, than God's words, God's thoughts. Joshua understood. God was in control and I'm going to trust Him. And that's why he could lead the people... And the most bizarre battle, I think, in history, when they walked around the city of Jericho seven times. I mean, from a human perspective, how foolish, Joshua. What are you doing? Get up there and fight. Climb up the walls. Do something. You can't just trust God's Word that He's just going to magically bring these walls down. But Joshua did do that, didn't he? And the people of Israel followed right behind and God accomplished what He wanted to. And it didn't take as long as it could have if they disobeyed. Joseph figured it out. He knew that God's purposes were best. He knew that 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 um, he could only be confident or only know God's revealed will, and so he would do that. What about you? Have you figured it out? Are you still struggling with God? Are you still trying to take the reins away from Him? Have you seen other people fail in their personal lives because they didn't trust God? Have you done that yourself? We have to recognize that God demands full obedience and full trust in Him even when it doesn't make sense. When we do, when we trust in God, the fears of this world, the fears of potential death, they have no power over us because like Joseph We understand that God is for us. And when we understand that, we're exactly in the place where God wants us to be. Trusting in God, believing in God, following Him without question. How do we wholeheartedly trust in God? How do we do this? A very simple concept, but very hard to do. We look to His Word find out what He wants us to do with regard to our relationship at work, at home, at church. What does the Scripture say about it? What does it say about how I ought to uh, guide and control my mind, my thoughts, my actions, my words? We look into the, wor- the Word and find out what He says And even when it doesn't make sense. You know, God, this person has, has spouted out His anger to me and I think the best response me Would be to 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 lash back at him in anger, and yet God says, "You know what? A gentle answer turns away wrath." But that doesn't make sense. I need to make sure I hold my ground so that they don't treat me like a doormat. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Very simple. What does God say? And then do it. But very hard to do, isn't it? Very hard. For Israel, the struggle to give up would only increase. Remember, they're going to now be looking at this coffin for 400 years, and it would be a perpetual reminder of, yes, God's deliverance of His people and protecting them from this great famine, but it also would be probably a, a thought of desperation for the people. Maybe times of doubt because, you know what? God, You said You'd deliver us and that we were going to deliver these bones back, but where are You? They would have to be resolved in their confidence in God. One day, God was going to allow them to take those bones back to Canaan and bury them there, which is exactly what happens. God will accomplish what He has set out to do. And our responsibility is to trust Him even when it doesn't make sense. It's